0: Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts Tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Gang, welcome to a new episode of blockhead i am so glad you could be here with me today wow is it hot it is hot in this little makeshift studio that i am in and wherever you are i hope you are cooler than i am right now uh, listening to this podcast in some kind of air conditioning or by the pool someplace cool anyway i wish that for you We have a great conversation today. It's not a cartoonist. We don't have a cartoonist with us today. I hope you will forgive the divergence from the theme, but I think you'll be pleased. I am very blessed and very lucky to count as one of my friends in the comics community, my guest today, Professor Charles Hatfield from California State University at Northridge in Los Angeles, professor of English, professor of comic studies, and one of the foremost minds in comics today, one of the foremost scholars of all things comics, whether it's alternative comics and emerging literature, one of his earliest books, or Hand of Fire, the Comics Art of Jack Kirby, or Comic Book Apocalypse, the Graphic World of Jack Kirby, a retrospective exhibition of Jack Kirby's original art held at CSUN's art galleries in, uh, what was it, 2015 or 2016, and curated by Charles Hatfield. If you don't have any of those works by Charles Hatfield and you are interested in comics, you really owe it to yourself to go out and pick them up. Hand of Fire, for anybody who loves Kirby, that is like the benchmark book, uh, the benchmark study. Charles is one of those those great guys who, who is so perceptive, such a great reader. He opens your eyes to, you know, a different way of looking at comics, a different way of looking at the way they work and how to understand them and and I've learned so much from reading Charles's work on comics, whether it's about love and rockets or it's about, you know, the fourth world in Jack Kirby's work on the forever people or new gods. Uh, it, it, there's always, Charles is always opening my mind to something else. And today's conversation is no less interesting and no less mind or eye opening uh I think I think Charles has done so much for comics and so much for the comics community that we can call him an honorary cartoonist because he's contributed at least as much. Should, they should make him a member of the National Cartoonist Society, and uh, uh, he's also, by the way, one of the co-founders of the Comic Study Society, uh, one of the first. Uh, what we could call scholarly societies for the study of comics a bringing together of scholarly minds people who are working on all kinds of interesting explorations of different ideas and permutations within comics what comics mean what it's all about anyway uh, Charles was one of the co-founders and and first president of the society and rightly so Um, so yeah we're lucky to have him here and I'm so pleased and I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation Before we get to that, I just want to tell you a little bit about what I've been working on. I think you all know I've been working on this comic book called Green Screen. And Green Screen is about uh, this Hollywood actress who's lost in this alternative world, you know, where all movies are real worlds unto themselves. And so it's an adventure, it's a sci-fi comedy. You can learn all about it and all about the Kickstarter that's coming up. Get a sneak peek of all the stuff that's going to happen on the Kickstarter on my website, jeffgrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. I hope you'll go there to find out, you know, what the Kickstarter is all about and uh, what kind of merchandise is going to be available as rewards. Um, today, as a matter of fact, G G-Clay print came in. A sample of a G-Clay print came in. and really beautiful print job. The illustration looks really great. The colors are so saturated. So beautiful. I'm so excited to be able to offer this as, a, as one of the reward tiers. At the end of this month, early August, at the latest, Kickstarter's going to be up and running. So keep up with all of the news. Find, get the sneak peeks uh, for each of the reward tiers. what What each of them looks like and all of that stuff. On my website, Jeff Grogan, G E O F F G R O G A N dot com, or you know, be sure to follow me on Instagram at GreenscreenComic. Okay, one word: GreenscreenComic. Without further ado, then, myself and Charles Hatfield in conversation.
1: But speaking <laughs> of back to the drawing board, you've been working on green screen now uh, on mm. Webtoon since well, since the beginning of this year or thereabouts, <laughs> and I see that you've really been. Um, no absorbing the vertical scrolling format, you know, of, of Webtoon and uh, really <laughs> using that to advantage. It is like the native comics experience for a lot of my students. It just is oh, so yeah. popular.
0: It, it really is. And I found that out, too, with my, with my students, too. They're always teaching me something, you know, that I don't know about. And and all of them see Webtoons as the, the primary vehicle for whatever work they're interested in doing, whether it's now or in the future uh that and for me it's secondary obviously i think you know if you if green screen in particular has been drawn and put together as a comic book and so i'm thinking in terms of panels and page layouts and things of that nature just like anybody who who comes from our generation right so adapting it for the scroll is um a challenge sometimes frustrating and also, you know, I have to say secondary in my mind, you know, because I'm much more interested in the comic book. And I know that makes me a dinosaur, but it, <laughs> I can't help it. You know, we are products of our own era. And uh, it
1: doesn't look like the work of a dinosaur, though. It looks like you've just adapted uh, to the form. Now, I sometimes uh, encourage my students to post their final comics projects onto Webtoon Canvas. Mm mm-hmm. um, and a few of them have really taken to the vertical scrolling format either because they have mad skills, for example, <laughs> there's some kind <laughs> of art major <laughs> uh, and or they've been a long time webtoon reader. Others will just use Canvas to post like scans of physical pages. Yeah. Um, that has happened on occasion and you, you can do that of course And and some have been kind of uneasy compromises between the two but generally I require my students to share their final comics projects with one another Uh, And that either happens physically in the classroom or during COVID. It's happened online in our so-called learning management system in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have offered uh, a little bit of extra credit for students who post their comics to public forums that anybody with net access could actually um, uh, get to. So a few students have posted uh, strips to Instagram Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and, um, uh, and a number of them have posted uh, comics to Webtoon and a couple of them actually have done more than one installment like let's say they started something to fulfill a requirement for my class right. uh, and then they've gone back and done a little little bit more so what I see on Webtoon Canvas is a mixture of everything from you know hand colored you know mm-hmm. printer paper or, or sketchbook kind of comics uh, and then again the more uh, sort of digital native and kind of webtoons vertical scrolling friendly uh, yeah. thing. I mean you can always just stack pages to scroll in in
0: webtoons. Sure. Yeah, it's wow. it's it's because you know one of the things I think you th- start to think about and and I don't do this. I uh, but people are reading these things on their phones, you know. Right. And and so many different formats. Now I I uh, again this is my age. But I don't use my phone very often. I use my iPad And I have my iPad Pro, and I use that for everything because I want to draw all the time. So that's with me wherever I go and whatever I do. So all of my interface with Webtoons or with uh, Instagram, et cetera, is through that. You know, that device Mm -hmm. is extraordinary, you know, when you think about it, all of these things in one package. But um, a lot of my students are looking at these things and look at other comics through their phone. And that's an entirely, you know, because that canvas is so small, Mm -hmm. you begin to think about, how they're interacting with that material in a, in a different way because the Mm -hmm. the scale is so, so different, you know, Uh, you have to think about lettering in different terms. You have to think about, uh, you know, your panel layout and what are they going to encounter as they move through one page to another page? Yeah. It's a whole different thing. If you want to exploit it in a way that is, you know, friendly to multiple Applications or multiple iterations, if you will.
1: What I've noticed with green screen is that you'll tend to have a last episode recap, uh, which floats on top of a slightly different color field. Yeah. Uh, and then there'll be a, a a kind of seam, a color switch, mm-hmm. um, where maybe we'll go from a lighter background color to a a, a darker uh, background color. That that's kind of the you know mm-hmm. virtual page surface, a kind of bleed, you know, um, mm-hmm. or or it, it may happen um, a number of times in a strip that you'll have bands of, of color that are slightly different. I've just been reading the Pinball Wizard strip with its boing, 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and digging the way we get that big uh, pan. Now, may I ask, um, what tools are you using to, to draw a green screen?
0: Well, it's, uh, interesting in, uh, 2000, I'm using an iPad and I'm using Procreate. And in 2017, um, I was still, I was looking for a new scanner because I was not happy with scans I was getting for a comic strip I was doing. And, um, so I was looking for a new scanner and my wife said, we were in, you know, Best Buy and my wife said, look, w- why don't you just try the iPad? And I'm like, oh, I'm going oh, to, no, 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 paper, paper, pen and paper. You know, uh, I mean, I'm home, I'm 61 years old, you know, it's like old dog new tricks and so i was reluctant but i started to play with it while i was there and it was like the apple pencil was made all the difference because Mm -hmm. if you've ever used a a wacom tablet or anything like that i never enjoyed the response between the surface of the wacom and the the wacom pen and it just had this quality that was stiff and and it didn't bend you know it just didn't feel Mm -hmm. So this was the Apple Pencil was great. And that made all the difference. So I got it and started using it in 2017 and I've used it for everything. Oh yeah. You know, everything I think that I've done since then. So uh, the, the Schultz animation stuff that I did was done in procreate and after effects and, um, green screen and, uh, it's predecessor spiking the lens, which was, uh, featuring s- the same characters, but in a very different situation. That was done, all done with uh, the with Procreate on the iPad, and uh, I love it. It's it's really it's it's so, it's just like it it opens up the toolbox in so many different ways and makes so many mm-hmm. things possible. And it's not to say that it replicates the experience of working on paper uh, because there's that tactility with the say the ink and the brush and the page, but this has a certain kind of tactility that's all its own. Uh, Which is gratifying Uh, and at the same time you can try so many different things instantaneously so um, You know, I'll work in 25 different layers, you know, and work out sketches multiple times until I'm happy with something. And, um, you know, I can play around with color hold and I can play around with, you know, uh, transparency and opacity and all kinds of things so much more easily. And, um, and I, I'm not a big fan of Photoshop in terms of working on my stuff. And that was always a thing, too. You have to bring your stuff into Photoshop and then you got to start playing with the color there. I always found that uncomfortable working in procreate it's much more like painting right onto the page and that's much more organic in that sense if that makes sense mm. anyway so i was
1: noting that that spiking the lens when i experienced it and i just remember um uh and have a few samples in front of me would fall into more of a horizontal newspaper strip pattern
0: um, yep.
1: um but they both seem to have been rendered the same way, and there's a real fluid um, uh, brush-like action to the to the lines. So I guess that's that feedback that you were craving, right? Yes. That's kind of kind of coming into play. So there's um, uh, characters are rounded, um, and and I, and I don't just mean Bella with her voluptuousness and her big hair, but yeah. <laughs> But I mean, you know, their um, uh, their limbs, shoulders. Um, there's kind of a uh, looks like um uh, a brush pen action uh, well, to, to that yeah
0: I'm so. glad you pick up on that you, you know you so, Charles you're such a sensitive reader you're like the you're you're really like the ideal reader I mean uh, uh, for a comic page it's just wonderful the things you pick up on because that's exactly what I was thinking about I was thinking you know I was after this this quality of pen and ink or brush and ink really that, that hearken back to uh, some of the illustrations that you would see coming out of the fifties. You know, there's, there's a kind of um, acknowledgement of the linearity of the drawing. And instead of trying to obscure it, you know, which I think a lot of digital art can lean towards. I was after something that was much more, you know, open about its nature, you know, and that was also, uh, again, informed by rather than by like the kind of volumetric drawing that one typically sees in superhero comics or something. I was trying to inform my work more with what one sees in, you know, the, the greats of comic strips art you know who who often had such fluid pen lines and and such fluid you know brushwork and um and so i wanted to get something of that into it and uh and bring that forward you know
1: yeah i have noticed that with characters hands they're not knobby and articulated mm-hmm. uh, each finger is uh uh it tends to be um uh 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 you know a couple of strokes although that that's particularly clear for bella because she's got that sort of curvy woman fingertip you know Mm -hmm. that that her fingers are pointed (laughs) right (laughs) i'm looking at the taking a fall strip right now and i can see where there's experiments and transparency and opacity like bella takes the fall and so there's multiple figures of her kind of tumbling down a a long vertical Mm -hmm. um and then when she hits the ground there's a little shakiness like uh the, the wump um, oh yes like, yeah like a vibration there so it looks like there's a before or after image there that's kind of shivering uh, mm-hmm. because she's just taken a bad fall <laughs> um, so it's got that oh, it's you know it's got that um uh vintage aesthetic as you said and the, and the kind of um uh, linear uh work but it's got some of um you know um uh, the digital tools that that allow you to play with uh, stroboscopic effects and things like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's so much you can do. I think the thing too, you know, that would have been done just with pen strokes, you know, in in an earlier era, and now you can play with it more freely, especially since, you know, the illustrator, if you will who's coloring their own work has the opportunity to play around with color in a way they couldn't, you know, previously, certainly not in, you know, assembly line comics. And it would have been very difficult even to do it, say with a Sunday page or something, if you're not completely in control of of the color yourself. So uh, that's one of the wonderful things about the immediacy of this. I I sit down and I I work out, uh, you know, I work out a page design, um, but I, I do the color pretty much at the same time I do the drawings, you know, I mean, it, I do my, my, uh, initial thumbnails and I build on the thumbnails and sketch it out and then work out whatever I need to work out mm-hmm. in terms of line. Then I start to color, uh, you know, almost instantaneously. And, um, that makes it again, you know, more of a painterly process as mm-hmm. much as
1: anything. It it's got to be a little weird in trying to coordinate that with, uh, uh, a really um, line work driven style. Um, mm. One thing I've noticed in some contemporary graphic novels, and even some mm. that are, you know, uh, that are well written, that are good, is that they have what to my eyes looks like a really awkward compromise between um, um, f- flat. Mm. Um, color or forms of drawing that look like they're adapted for flat color
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but then again um gradient coloring and this kind of volumetric illusion uh, mm-hmm. you know thing and I, and I sometimes find that um Like I was reading Jerry Craft's book, Class Act, recently, which is a sequel to his book, New Kid. And they're both exceptionally well-written
0: books. (laughs)
1: New Kid won a Newbery Award last year or the year before, unprecedented for a graphic novel. And it's really good stuff, but I really had difficulty warming to the art because uh, there was a lot of cloning of elements, uh, (laughs) digital reproduction of elements. uh, And that led to uh, a kind of unevenness of line weight that, that appeared, accidental rather than deliberate to me uh and then in the sequel book which again is a very well written book glad to have read it um but there's a kind of gradient shading combined Mm -hmm. with flat color aesthetics Mm -hmm. and i I just find that to be (laughs) uh i I don't know it doesn't float my boat aesthetically so i just Mm -hmm. (laughs) i have some um and, and the line work there is not um as brushy um uh or or rounded as like for example what you've done in green screen so uh it it doesn't there's not as much bounce to it but also i find that the uh, sometimes i find the digital coloring overdone in contemporary uh artists um uh, maybe because they are trying to uh, i don't know uh um they're, they're doing like a, a linear style, but with, uh, but with um, uh, kind of photographic effects as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, that it, it takes, um, there's a real delicacy about that finding, um, uh, and there are, there are artists that are, are clearly uh, acculturated when it comes to um, drawing in line That are trying to, you know, use all the tools (laughs) digitally, Uh, and it's a learning curve, um, you know. So, um.
0: it's also uh, it's about finding, you know, it is about finding where there. Well, there's multiple things that come to my mind now, and one is that, like for example, when I was working on spiking the lens, I was working much more with this idea of a flat kind of graphic approach so that you might see big blocks of say you know a kind of um pink uh, laid over you know a bedroom furniture or something so that one flat color seems to fill up the entire space and you know very much hearkening back to you know uh, printing techniques that were done in the 40s and 50s that were very influenced by modernism and all of that you know um but when you start working into the into comic book it's interesting what happens in the sense that you begin to, at least I found this, and maybe it's not true for everybody, but I found th- this, that I've needed in order to tell the story, begin to flesh out spaces that m- I might have abbreviated within the comic strip format. And so as you flesh those things out, I think also you begin to think about fleshing out things like lighting <laughs> and, um, you know, how light impacts a surface or a, an environment. And um and yeah, and then you begin to think about how it impacts form, and that also that brings you to a different place, visually. And so, I you know, it is kind of I think a tricky road between those those areas, and the desire on the one hand to, um, for to, for a certain kind of aesthetic, and and at the same time to give sort of verisimilitude to an environment for a reader you know right um there's
1: there's always been this tug of war in cartooning between a a kind of illusion of depths and volumes on the one hand and then just kind of being in love with the graphic flatness of mm -hmm. of 2d on the other hand (laughs) um and there's so many ways to resolve that i guess i have in front of me one of the spiking the lens strips Mm -hmm. um Uh, which is the, hey, Suze, this girl here is an actress, that strip that I just kind of brought up randomly through Google. Uh Uh, And one thing I've noticed here and with some of the other uh, strips in that very strip-like strip uh, is that um, uh, backgrounds tend not to be fully colored in, but often they'll be in like, I don't know, like a square, a little trapezoid or ellipse Mm -hmm. shape. That's a color spot, almost like a spotlight in the background behind a character um, uh, replete with a kind of bend day dot effect that mm-hmm. gives that that kind of pop look. So sometimes um, uh, the background will be rendered in a single color or with um, one color with a faint wash um, uh, over it. And then at other times, especially for these kind of call outs or yeah. spotlight moments, uh, there'll be. An abstracted kind of modernistic shape, like a, yes, like like an angled, you know, like a uh, kind of a trapdoor thing behind a posed character, um, and again with the 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 bin day effect. Uh, whereas I saw that in green screen, you know, it's it's a much more full uh, environment. That uh, like I'm, you know, I have the mountain climbing strip in front of me in green screen. Oh, and, okay. And there's a lot of um, uh, you know, there's a kind of woodsy environment. It's a mm-hmm. much thing, as you said, a kind of verisimilitude for that, right? Mm-hmm. Wanting to have, uh, maybe a more a complete feeling or, or, um, uh, immersive environment. Exact-
0: yes, exactly. Yeah. that That's something that was, you know, uh, th- when you are obviously, you know, you're you're aware of this. I'm I'm sure. When you sit down to design for a comic book and you think about the scale of a comic book versus the scale of a comic strip, which is, you know, if you're originally spiking the lens with something I developed in um, consultation with an editor from King Features, and so. We were, so we were le- le- leaning towards newspapers, so it was done in with that idea in mind. So abbreviations in regard to backgrounds and things of that nature are part and parcel of that world. You know, um, you have to uh, um, you have to economize in a way uh, for that. And when you start working into the more immersive environment of a comic book, obviously, you know, you have this. Not only do you have a greater, a larger canvas to work on. But I think you also have this desire um, to give your readers uh, more of that environment and and to bring them in. At the same time, you know, if you'll notice, I uh, I mean, I I don't want to get into, like, there's some artists who lean more towards, you know, I lean more towards the cartoony approach than I do towards, and the whole history of, you know, cartoons and whether you're talking about uh, animated you know Hanna Barbera cartoons or or i'm looking to fleischer or whatever you know there's this whole that whole aesthetic informs pretty much everything i do because i feel like i've always felt like my nature lent leaned in that direction but there's also the desire on the part of you know um i think those who are more interested in a kind of um uh, well verisimilitude and, and naturalism and I hate I hesitate to use naturalism it's really the wrong word but a, you know a more volumetric realism of some kind so that you know um, to kind of hide the the original the, the origins of the comic book in cartoon to hide those and to place a veneer of kind of um, representationalism and representational illustration it's it's like a choice between the history of illustration um from howard Pyle and nc wyeth mm-hmm. versus you know the history of comics and animated cartoons you know from from um harriman on you know it's like it, it, it's that kind of division in a way
1: yeah
0: you know uh I, i'm seeing the
1: your i'm seeing your um as i uh, as i've been bouncing around on google I'm on um, your Patreon page um, and it brings me back to an image I remember seeing before uh, which is an image um, that appears uh, in one of your Patreon videos Uh, and that's that lovely image of yourself and the dog figure reading comic books side by side surrounded surrounded by other comic books and a bag of cookies (laughs) (laughs) and and that image um, uh, is uh, for me such a um, a kind of '50s streamlined modernism cartooning, Schultz, Ketchum, UPA kind of era uh, image, but it's got that sort of guitar pick-shaped olive green <laughs> color swatch behind it. Uh, it almost looks like something you'd find, um, you know, on on uh, I, I don't know the, the 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 body of an old I don't know, like a Telecaster or something. Like, <laughs> there's, there's that, there's that, that block, uh, um, uh, vaguely uh, fingernail-shaped, and it's a swatch, and it's, it's, it's behind the figures or with the figures, mm-hmm. um, and that feels uh, very much like that era that you were just, you were just describing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, well, the digital th- digital thing brings different workflows for artists, and I've noticed that a lot of people that are credited with um, um, being primary artists on comic books, that means they're doing the breakdowns, layouts, penciling. Um, uh, they're also are having a larger hand in color decisions, or either coloring or co-coloring comic mm-hmm. books, uh, because the files are just changing hands digitally or they're being shared uh, online. Um Uh, digitally and so you have um, artists that um, in an old school assembly line line comic book way we would have referred to as pencilers um, often in this context they appear as you know quote unquote pencilers and inkers Mm -hmm. right but then again they have input into um uh Coloring, or they may be the primary colorist or sole colorist. So, if I look at a book like Saga, which is drawn by Fiona Staples, I think she started drawing uh, on paper and scanning in and completing, but nowadays she draws fully digital. Uh, A lot of her drawing consists of uh, solid color fields, Mm -hmm. Um, and she makes a lot of design decisions about pages in anticipation of where that color is going to be mm-hmm. uh or i look at uh, a bit of root by um david walker and chuck brown and sanford green that i've been uh, reading lately and in the early numbers of that comic book series sanford green was co-coloring or supervising coloring now it's sophie Do- dodgson is coloring that book and very very well uh, in line with the same aesthetic that was previously established um, but excellent um, but i became aware that these um, Artists who were pencilers or penciler penciler inkers in the old comic book parlance um, were often seeing the pages later in the workflow, Mm -hmm. and they were adding, adjusting, or directing color. Um, And uh, obviously, the the digital file sharing speeds things up, um, but it also enables um, uh, a line artist to anticipate um, color holds color fields and other effects. that are going to come later. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think that's really interesting. I mean, the efficiencies that it brings for artists involved in that workflow is probably a good thing Um, uh, so that the work is not as crazy-making, but also that the work doesn't necessarily leave your hands and never come back to you. That's another weird thing about comic books now is often the credited letterer is also credited as a designer in the comic books, oh, that's and so that 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 lettering credit, which may be a company or a person or persons, um, is also charged with um, design elements because a lot of floppy comic books now, the ones that are hitting you know local comic shops and such, are very designy, mm-hmm. uh, and oh, yeah. and there'll be Um, uh, letterers for whom lettering is really only part of what they're doing, right? Um, 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 Some of those artists are even involved in um, layout choices. I think that may be the case for when you have a line artist who's actually drawing images separately and then sort of jigsawing them together to make pages rather than drawing full pages. Uh, But yeah, there's just these differences in division of responsibility and workflow, and some of it means... That line artists can be colorists um, mm-hmm. uh, at the same time in ways that at its best allows for a really integrated uh, uh, approach. So that's that's cool to see. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, well, it is, and it, it's it, it is just another you know it's the impact of technology on the medium and and how it's transforming the production of of comics on a mass scale you know the uh, the large companies the assembly line i hate to use the term assembly line comics it seems you know um, but it's it derisive but it's not meant to be um it's just a, a description but uh it it really seems to to um you know be changing the way comics are produced and the way then comics are conceived Uh, certainly in in terms of the design and the visual aspects of it, you know, it's really fascinating when, when as a kid coming up and this, I think is true of, of, of artists of my generation and, and maybe just mm, a few years after, um, you thought if you were going to be into comics, you were thinking in terms of often terms in black and white and color was something you didn't deal with. You never thought about it. Uh, you got to it in art class and you kind of avoided it. You know, uh, a lot of folks who are really skilled at line drawing never got involved in painting because painting is a different animal, you know, in, in the way you think of of lay, of, of translating what you're seeing, uh, you know, onto a canvas. It's, it's a different approach. Now, uh, I think that those barriers um, are, you know, eviscerated. They're not there any longer because artists are coming at it with this idea that all of these things are available to them whether it's in their own personal work or it's going to be uh you know something for a a major corporation or whatnot Uh, they may they're going to have that ability to uh, bring color to to the work and so painting skills uh whether they're digital painting skills or more traditional painting skills uh you know analog painting skills um you know, there are things that they're not avoiding anymore. They're they're and they're also being taught those things. I think um, more often and more seriously. And and you know, um, it used to. It's it's a big part of what illustration used to be, of course. Uh, and I think more and more as mm. comics artists embrace the history of illustration and and as as being part of the language, the visual language that they're exploiting or exploring, um, and and instead of staying away from it, but embracing it, uh, you know, it becomes it comes more to the fore. Um, so yeah, so color becomes a very personal set of choices, and um, and personalizes the work even more. You know,
1: I am trying to figure out color flatting so that I can demonstrate those things to my students. Some of whom, of course, will know better than I will. There's always a few students who are ringers that will know. Um, um, Better um, Particularly if they come from a studio major um, Which some of my Comics students do Um, uh, But that has has become A a new category Of uh, Art assistant Whether credited or uncredited On a lot of these rather high volume Comic book serials Uh, And I see it occasionally credited on Webtoons as well Mm. uh, Where you'll have a solo Authored comic but somebody will be um credited with color flatting uh mm-hmm. or thanked for their help with that um uh that's um uh, it, it, it's interesting i've seen some good process pages in the back of comic books that, that, that oh, demonstrate yeah. that demonstrate these things uh, i'm just amused because right now i'm reading lions and tigers and bears oh my which is one of the latest green screen scripts. And there's oh. this kind of there's this kind of encounter uh, between Suds here, the so-called bodyguard, yeah. <laughs> and these Bambi-esque Disney characters, yeah, uh, the, the 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 woodland creatures, you know, and so he's freaking out, he's running away, um, and and the moment um, uh, is is really uh, sweet because it's kind of a clash of styles, like he's he's staring. At yeah. these creatures that are staring at him, and they're really kind of Bambi and thumperified, you know, <laughs> they're super cute. And then he runs away screaming,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which,
1: which uh, uh, is making me laugh again. <laughs> i
0: <I'm glad. laughs> Yeah, it made me laugh when I did it, too, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, there, it also plays in that thing that there are sometimes there are children who are just scared, you know, by the... Uh, you, you, their encounter with talking animals can sometimes be go the wrong way. Uh, in, in any case, yeah, um, that kind of uh, encounter um, with him, he's a fun character to do. And uh, but it, stylistically too, it's it, it's fun to play in that sandbox, you know, um, to bring out some of those aspects of Disney storytelling. Uh, and and sort of force them up against another kind of storytelling and a uh, kind of illustration. It's kind of fun, and does make for some, uh, you know, uh, just kind of opportunities that are um, enjoyable and and fun to do. And um, I hope an audience picks up on that too, because I I really I love doing that stuff. You you spoke
1: of. Um... You know, bringing uh, the long history of illustration yeah. uh, in, into or back into comics art as as some uh, artists do. And then again, channeling traditions from cell animation and the mm-hmm. like. One of the things I enjoy thinking about in comics is that um, style is very often uh, inconsistent. So it's kind of a shifty thing. The needle mm-hmm. is always bouncing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um That may not be so much the case when we're dealing with um, a drastically um, pared down style that the cartoonist really owns. So if you look at Schultz in Peanuts, Mm -hmm. um, Uh since after the first few years, he stopped drawing, you know, city streets and driveways and houses in perspective uh, and he stopped, you know, Doing those things,
0: mm-hmm. uh, and
1: he also stopped those kind of experiments of having like Lucy play golf among adults, for example. Right. Yeah. <laughs> those kind of Fantasy. things. Uh, this trip enters a more 2D world. Uh, as a writer, he didn't need it to be anything else. Uh, um, uh, but we we see in a, in a lot of um, comic book art that kind of uh, bouncing back and forth between different styles. Um, or that level of um, immersive naturalism on the one hand uh, and then kind of uh, cartoon playfulness on the other you can definitely see that in Mike Alred, whom you recently interviewed Right. Uh, you know uh, and I'm thinking about some of the uh, characters that he um, uh, has drawn over the years or thinking about his work uh, on a book like uh ecstatics for example where you have a character Mm -hmm. like Mm dupe oh yes dupe is this kind of blob a sort of herculoids character yeah (laughs) uh, (laughs) that that gets around in those uh stories by Allred and peter milligan uh um and wonderful uh, that that's really cool um you know uh, and yet i i've seen um marvel artists other artists do sort of painterly renditions of dupe and i'm like man that is grotesque yeah (laughs) that that, that is just grotesque um somehow (laughs) flat color seems to work better for that i mean it's a borderline grotesque character anyway because cuteness and the grotesque are always kind of you know um uh just one step away from each other uh yeah
0: yeah but mike Allred has
1: that um uh you Know, uh, and Mike and Laura already as an artistic team, like Laura Coloring. I was looking at their David Bowie graphic novel, um, the other day, um, and uh, a lot, yeah, a lot of the aesthetic there is a flat color aesthetic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, and and Mike already can kind of shift up and down a scale, um, kind of uh, unobtrusively, you know, or what, whatever the word would be subtly, um, between. Um, more render happy stuff, and then more you know simplified stuff, um, and I, I think that's uh, has been a winning quality of his work um, uh, uh, all along, right? So um, oh, yeah. totally. I, I'm looking at um, a dupe versus Thor image that he drew here, uh, and the Thor is very much in a in a Kirby, you know, or or um, Kirby, of the Senate kind of, uh, uh, way, yeah. uh, and you know, dupe is dupe. Uh, and, and, um, uh, <laughs> you can see that in, in, uh, Mike and Laura Allred's, uh, work, you know, um, um, uh, he's such a snazzy cartoonist. The word snazzy was invented for people like,
0: Mike oh yeah, and, absolutely. And, and
1: it's a they're such a great teaming. So, um, but I, I you know, that I, I, like Kirby was one set of solutions, right? Yeah. Uh, one set of compromises between, uh, naturalism and a highly kind of, uh, stylized, um, uh, cartoonism, right? Yeah. Um, Kirby was one set, um, and, uh, artists like Mike already can channel that when they're, when they're drawing, uh, like Kirby, um, uh, but Kirby himself was always, you know, had worked out his own set of compromises and the way he worked them out in the 40s and the way he worked them out in the 70s were different. You know, mm-hmm. it was just, it was, it was different.
0: Oh, so absolutely. You know, um, you know, it's, this leads me into, and it's interesting because when I was imagining our conversation, one of the things I was thinking about was exactly this topic, which was, you know, the solutions that Kirby came up with graphically. <laughs> And what road leads from those and say the solutions that an artist who just celebrated his 80th birthday, Neil Adams came up with, which were leading a very, very different path. And I think if, you know, if we're talking about mainstream comics mainstream, when I say mainstream, I'm I'm using it in the old way of uh, referring to superhero comics, I suppose. Um, You know, when I think about that, it seems as though there are these various pathways uh, for a long time, you know, the, the aim towards a kind of away from the kind of um, simplifications and abbreviations that Kirby invented, uh, as much as they inform like the work of somebody like John Buscema or somebody uh, working after him, there there's still all of this tug from like the 70s through, I don't know when, um, towards the kind of volumetric Um, light and dark and shade approach of somebody like Adams who promised a kind of, you know, literal, almost three dimensionality in his work when you first, you know, Kirby was on the one hand, okay, Kirby's characters jump from the page. Like, for example you know, that first demon cover, you know, where the demon is popping out of the cover.
1: Coming at you.
0: (laughs) Coming at you, exactly. But at the same time, one of the things I think I've said before is that the character is also stretched as tight as a drum across the surface of that page, so that it never like eschews flatness. The flatness is part and parcel of that projection, if you will, whereas Adam's on the one hand now Adams was a great designer as well as a great Mm -hmm. renderer, Mm -hmm. but the rendering is so powerful that it pushes past those graphic elements and Mm -hmm. promises you this 3d IMAX experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the, those two pathways have been so dominant in mainstream Mm -hmm. comics on the one hand, for many years, I think the approach towards abbreviation, and And I'm just throwing this out now, and maybe totally off. But uh, it seems to me that approach, the Kirby approach to abbreviation, while evident in certain aspects like Kirby crackle and things like that, um in terms of figuration and whatnot, was kind of pushed away from superhero comics as a dominant trend and, and rather became something that people referred to when they wanted to refer to, you know, how wonderful Jack Kirby was, you know, right. became a reference point, but not a part of the language they were. Using. So I'm thinking of somebody like, you know, Jim Lee or something, um, or, or even some of the most stylized artists of, of the nineties or whatnot. Um, It seemed like Mm -hmm. they're they're looking for the kind of experience, the the volumetric crosshatched experience and that sense of of Mm -hmm. dimensionality that one got from somebody like Neil Adams. Um, It's kind of, and I think, does Mm -hmm. it lead you into a place as an artist where you have to make a choice between those two? Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody like Allred that you're speaking about, you know, you're absolutely right. He slides up and down the scale. Uh, there's always been within his work this wonderful malleability, mm-hmm. um, and you do feel his figuration is stylized in a way, like Adam's work is stylized, no doubt mm-hmm. about that, but All Reds is stylized in a kind of way that's somewhat less, it's not as volumetric, it's not as um, solid in that mm-hmm. sense. So it has nods more towards, towards animation, maybe towards Fleischer, um, animation, uh, figurative animation, like Superman, um, that kind of thing, as well as to, you know, periodically to somebody like Kirby. Um, although he's never as invested in the graphic design shape oriented approach that Kirby takes, you know, Kirby's got this thing in his work where shape and line, become dominant forces mm-hmm. and whereas in atoms there's this kind of quality that's like light and shade mm-hmm. uh, rather than line and shape seem to be dominant Does yeah that... and
1: uh, and uh, but you know ironically that leads neil adams to render with a lot more lines yeah yeah <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather than fewer well, um talking about like my own red you know is is would use fewer lines to render a heroic, you know, cover image or something than, than a Neil Adams or a strongly Adams-influenced artist would. You probably remember that glorious issue of Madman where every single panel was a swipe from a different artist. Oh, my um, God, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so he was working out his, and Mike Allred was working out his LZ Seagar and his Hal Foster.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, his, his
1: Jack Kirby and his Neil Adams. Um, and you could see that he made no attempt to really hide the origins of the images. In fact, it was like spot- spot the homage basically it was a game yeah. it was a fun, was a game. delightful game to play um yeah adams with that kind of advertising or commercial illustration background and of course adams was just a production whiz so yeah. he would talk you know uh, the production people at dc or whatever into doing this or that thing and and you start to see a lot more color holds and a lot of different uses of screen tone and things like that mm-hmm. um after adams um, so, the Adams work had a big impact on on people who inked, you know, maybe yes. like Palmer and other people that comic book fans knew primarily as inkers. Um, yeah, so, uh, it, you know, it, it is um, a, a different approach. I, I think, um, you know, I was reading an article recently by my colleague Mark Singer about the work of George Perez. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it occurred i think last year in inks the journal of the comic study society a wonderful article uh, and it got me to thinking about perez again and it got me onto the grand comics database at comics.org uh to to track perez's career Mm. uh, much of which i experienced firsthand as a reader but then again much of it i you know had missed i had just missed uh and Uh, You know, Perez was famous for doing highly detailed work and spreads that were crammed full of heroes, right? And Mm -hmm. I happen to be sitting at this very table, the kitchen table, uh, next to my daughter uh, reading um, uh, on uh, the Marvel Unlimited app some... Avengers comics mm-hmm. uh, by Kurt Busiek and George Perez that I had never read before, and I wasn't, I hadn't realized it was a long, long run of that work. So there's a moment, right? Uh, there's a moment in the f- in the first issue of this run where several characters are coming up to the Avengers mansion, uh, and the butler Jarvis tells them, "Oh, you're you're so glad you're here. You you can join the others." And one of the characters, Kurt, you know, you know, or asks, "What others?" And even before I swipe my finger across the screen, in other words, to turn the page, quote unquote, mm-hmm. I turned to my daughter and said, "What others? When I turn this page, quote unquote, there is going to be a spread
0: <laughs> crammed
1: with characters. I had never seen this before. But knowing Perez is like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Jarvis ushers them into the room, opens the door. What others? I said, when I turn this page." There's going to be like scores of others, and sure enough, there <laughs> was right. <laughs> but it got me to thinking. The first Perez comic that I read was an issue of Inhumans done in the mid '70s uh-huh. uh, uh, during my earlier comic book collecting phase. Uh, and and then later in the '80s, I read a, a lot of New Teen Titans and Crisis and things that were um, penciled by Perez. And I was thinking, okay, what was Perez's deal? Well, mm-hmm. he's a very design-centric artist, right? Uh, Perez thought nothing of putting 16, 18, 20 panels onto a superhero comic book page. Uh, Mark Singer's article has this terrific analysis of a page that tells of the origin of Vic Stone or Cyborg, where there's a whole bunch of insets, panels within panels and overlapping elements that are all designed to capture a sort of pseudoscientific sense of the high-tech process used to transform Victor (laughs) into a cyborg. Uh, And so he's doing all these... Uh, um, um, insets and all these um, very small panels. Um, typical Perez, like it's really design centric. And I think, okay, so that's a that's a post Neil Adams kind of era approach. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Perez's figure work is uh, and his rendering is not exactly like Adams'. Um, right. There's enough um, uh, well, there's enough meticulous rendering. It does kind of remind me of of Adams'. But then again, reading Perez from early on, it felt like there was a sort of Kirby-esque dynamic. Uh, the thing about Perez is that he was mad for symmetry, and he would design pages for symmetry, even if that would, in my opinion, dampen the action a little bit. You yeah. and, um, he, would, he would do that because a lot of Perez pages really work like posters, you know. Oh, I agree. saying, um, But he and John Byrne, who also emerged in the same period, is again an artist I just began to see before I quit reading comic books as a kid, and then he was all the rage when I returned to comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, comic books. Uh, he and John Byrne both had this sense of uh, maybe having grown up with the uh, the 60s marvel of Kirby, um, and, and then again um, with the late 60s, uh, early 70s kind of little design revolution of Adams, and that move toward a hyper-realistic rendering and you could really see it in burn like burn wants to work out the compromise again it's the same compromise that kirby worked one way and adams worked in another and burn seems to have the influence of both Mm -hmm. Uh, So burn definitely has um uh, this kind of Adams-like rendering. I remember him drawing Doomsday Plus One, a Charlton comic book in the, in the mid-70s, you know, like yeah, with robots and rocket ships and things. <laughs> uh, he's got that Adams thing. Uh, and the same thing is true of of uh, Walter Simonson. Yeah. If you look, look at Simonson, he is a design genius. Uh, he and Howard Chaikin, uh, yeah. who were, you know, were like rubbing elbows artists in the 70s. Uh, had that thing uh, that was very Adams design centric. Um, there's a fine essay from many years ago by Arlen Schumer on this topic um, about the kind of Adams era and, and post revolution. But Simonson really hits his stride as a storyteller uh, when he's exercising his Kirby in a big way on the long run he did on Thor and, mm-hmm. um, First really graphically noteworthy run on Thor, I think, since Kirby had left the comic. Um, And you got Simonson kind of simplifying uh, the approach a bit that you would have seen earlier in, like, Manhunter or some other, you know, formative work by Simonson. Of course, Manhunter was like a seven or eight page backup, so he had to cram stuff into those pages to get the story going. But, like, you know, with Thor, there's this long kind of um, easy breathing stretch of Kirby-esque storytelling combined with Simonson's design chops and I always think of John Workman lettering for Simonson at the same time that's part of the design aesthetic mm-hmm. that's part of the feel um, and so I think like the image era artists grew up with Perez and Byrne and Simonson yeah. they grew up with these people who themselves had, had um, worked uh, with the influences of Adams and Kirby so um, what you get is people kind of pulling one way or another and of course as comic book printing and coloring improved fine line rendering of the sort of jim lee style mm-hmm. really uh, came to the fore to me that's a little fussy i mean just on a personal level that's not my jam but, yeah. you know i'm yeah. much more interested in and again like the mike allred that we were discussing yeah. um where there's the work sort of dares to be simple yeah uh, and you mentioned animation a number of times and animation reinvigorates a certain approach to like action adventure comics you can see it uh, somewhat in Mike Allred's work, although I don't know that animation is, I don't know if that would be a primary influence for Mike or not, but um, you can see it when animators like Bruce Tim and Glenn Murakami and Darwin Cook <laughs> start drawing um, superhero comics um, uh, in the 90s and beyond, and their stuff is often seen as retro, and as you mentioned, the Kirby-esque flourishes often feel like Kirby homage. Yeah some of those artists could convert that into a working language where they were perfectly capable of doing something S without seeming to strain. You can see it in the late Darwin Cook; that he was, yeah. you know, he was perfectly capable of, uh, you know, he did an Avengers homage book that was supposed to be set in like 1963 at one point, <laughs>
0: mm. and it
1: was very uh, like Kirby meets Chick Stone kind of stuff
0: <laughs> in, yeah. in the
1: art, but it was undeniably Bruce Tim. Uh, I loved it when, like Glenn Murakami or whoever it was, drew like a Batman crossover with the demon in the animated uh-huh. in the animated series style. Oh. That was really that work is really boisterous, you know. Uh, and it's got some of the, uh, for one of a better term, cartoonishness of Kirby. But the irony is that Kirby wanted to draw like you know Alex Raymond when he yeah. started, out. He, and he and he just didn't hit that mark. He ended up you know, going off into his own very distinctive kind of orbit. And there's that famous comment, well, for me it's famous, from Gil Kane, who says that late Kirby was no longer about figures, it was just ideas of figures. And and Kane wasn't really down with that, because he thought that Kirby sacrificed the beauty of the figure, which he did. You know, he sure. sacrificed the beauty of the figure. But I just love that late Kirby stuff. I, I, I'm really kind of an aesthetic sweet spot for me, um, and this influences the way I respond to, like, modernist fine art too and mm-hmm. modernist design is where you know figurative art um uh, tends toward well there's a high degree of, of abstract stylization mm-hmm. um and i don't know that kirby was consciously going for that but increasingly i see it in kirby
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that's what I, that's something i really dig you know uh, I, I really dig that kind of um uh when the, the, the heroic register of uh, um, Hal Foster or Alex Raymond kind of collides with this streamlined modernism. And uh, I mean, you mentioned Jabu Shema earlier. Uh, he was obviously working in a Kirby ish register and often following Kirby on other Marvel comics, but you could see he was always trying to get his Hal Foster on.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: It was always like much more beautiful rendering than Kirby right oh, yeah, um yeah. much more so which is one reason why Bushima on like like conan was a hoot that seemed yeah. to fit him like hand to glove you know
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The no it's
1: it, fascinating to think about you know i mean there's a highly conventionalized uh, aspect comics art and a schematized aspect to it mm-hmm. uh, and then again there's observational drawing and naturalism you know uh um, and things like that and there's always this tug of war going on especially in a genre that's as volatile or kind of unstable as superheroes is which is a crazy genre and so it's always got you know it's stylistically you know it's all about. i'm loving chris samney right now who's drawing this fire power book for image comics and he's like an old school action adventure classicist kind of an alex tothy um, artist uh, he can certainly manage the 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 like double page spread action dynamics and the huge punchiness of all of it all um, a little more elegant than than Kirby but it's it's still it's got that same um, effective minimalism that Darwin Cook had you know mm-hmm. in, in his comics work.
0: You know, there's God, Charles. There's so much to unpack in what you've just been talking about, and so many different ideas, and 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 I want to respond to so many of them all at once. Um, you know, uh, one of the things about Kirby's period, let's see. Well, okay, for me, there's a distinction when we talk about mid to late period Kirby. There's a distinction between the period up to, say, sixty-seven. When, when the page sizes change, mm-hmm. and Kirby goes from what is it, um, what is it, uh, two times up to one and a half times up, right? And it, it, you know, from these massive pieces of Bristol board in which this can large canvas, uh, which he had to work on for you know uh, what he started in the in the forties working on. We're talking about twenty five years working at one scale, and all of a sudden. Instantaneously, in like '67 or was it '68, they they had to drop down to the conventional 11 by 17, 10 by 15 page mm-hmm. area, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a that's a drop of multiple inches. And yeah. all of a sudden, what you begin to get in Kirby, it, it forces Kirby towards greater simplification. In that period mm-hmm. of time and and I'm, I'm saying this is somebody who's worked both large and, and small who mm-hmm. when I was working with large canvases I mean there are canvases I've painted that are six feet I've done collages that are six feet and eight feet across mm-hmm. you know mural size stuff and I was very comfortable working in that scale and Kirby I'm certain was very comfortable working two times up and suddenly he's got to shrink everything down to one and a half. And probably he didn't think about it consciously, but as he's going to work in this new scale, it does something to his work, to his his drawing. And so, I mean, and I'm saying that because I've experienced that and anybody who's drawn on those variety of scales has experienced that it pushes you towards something, especially Mm. in something like comic books, where you're still charged with illustrating a number of items within any any given scene or panel. Uh, You have Mm -hmm. to find new ways of condensing all of this information, Mm -hmm. right? You're charged with Mm -hmm. conveying. At the same time, if you look at those late Kirby books, a lot of people talk about, well, Kirby was, you know, on his way out of Marvel. He he didn't want to give them his all. So he's doing lots of filler, you know, one panel pages. And so there's this idea somewhere in there that somehow or another he's doing that Expediently so he can do more pages And get through that but I don't think that that's Really what's at hand there I really Mm -hmm. feel like what's Happening there is that Kirby Is exercising his arm And he's exercising His graphic capability Mm -hmm. He's he's taking He's in the only way left to him To exercise that broad canvas Mm -hmm. He's filling up that page You know with one image of Galactus Or whatever it is you know And Mm -hmm. What happens also at the same time is this greater push towards flatness, towards um, you know, a kind of graphic language that is line and shape, that's very graphically oriented and very much adhered to the page. That's very much a part and parcel of modernist, uh, modernist fine art and modernist um, design that was. Part of the visual language of the late 60s, early 70s, Um, you know, in design, in in interior design, in furniture design, you'd Mm. see it everywhere. Um, This move towards, you know, the acknowledgement of shape and the simplicity of shape Mm. all over the place. And it's all over. And it's not to say that Kirby is thinking, well, now I'm going to do something that's reminiscent of, you know, Ellsworth Kelly and its use of positive (laughs) and negative space. Mm -hmm. He's not thinking that way, I don't think, although. I think he's encountering that work, you know, and work like that through his reading, his encounters in magazines and newspapers and whatnot. It was in the culture, right? It's embedded mm-hmm. in the culture. And so I think that's beginning to inform it and push it towards greater abstraction. And all of those elements together, you know, push him towards what I think are some extraordinary images mm-hmm. that are distillations of... I think, uh, a kind of modernist or late modernist zeitgeist in abstraction mm. and in design. Um, it's a synthesis of this, of illustration of storytelling and all of these things. And, you know, what's happening in terms of, of, you know, the visual culture of the Western world, uh, at least in the United States, uh, and in, in Western Europe. Uh, in that, that period of time. And, and so it's kind of an extraordinary meeting. And what happens as a, as kind of spillage from that is it leads to somebody like Simonson and somebody like Chaykin who are very aware of how the images interlock on the page in the same way that Toth is, you know, Toth is also kind of a, a, a one of those figures who's, who's Figuration and drawing, perhaps, is not as um, abstract as Kirby's, but is also very much aware of the importance of distillation and editing in image making. Now, Toth would never say he was influenced by, uh, you know, um, uh, modernist painting or something like that, but he would say he was influenced by Noel Sickles, you know, uh, or or somebody like that who's pushing him towards kind of more graphic. Orientation in his work, and when I say graphic, I'm meaning you know more uh, acknowledgement of the flatness of the two-dimensional surface, you know, mm-hmm. and as as you know. I guess where I'm going with this is it leads to Simonson and Simonson's got Simonson's been to RISD, you know, and he's, he's gone through all of these 2d courses and all of this stuff, you know, very sophisticated art school. And he's coming out of that environment, very aware of design. And I don't know what courses he took. Um, but graphic design seems to be a bit, a big part of what Simonson does. and by, you know, entering through this, well, particularly with Thor, you know, he's got this vehicle now where he can marry marry the Kirby influence to all of his experience and understanding of graphic design. And I think the same thing happens in Howard Chaikin's work. Um, you know, this, this uh, understanding of and acknowledgement of the two dimensionality of the page and, and graphic design in his work and the importance of lettering as a design element within the page mm-hmm. i don't know what all this adds up to i'm just like riffing
1: no it's 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 I, I i love thinking about these things because i'm constantly thinking about comics art styles uh in terms of a kind of tug of war uh, yeah. between uh different things i mean you know uh some historians like terry Smolderin will tell us that uh, a certain um Uh, Well, instability is not the word I'm looking for Uh, but uh, comics art from the beginning uh, is absorbing, spoofing (laughs) you know appropriating (laughs) styles of all sorts so there's a number of different registers that are are at work and you can see this even in like certain 19th century comics you can see uh, uh, that there's Uh, Borrowing from low and high, there's these different registers that are happening. Uh, So, the name of the game with the really effective comics artists is that they fool us into thinking that this work is actually really uh, organic, consistent. Mm -hmm. um, That these uh, drawn figures are drawn the only way they possibly could be drawn. Uh, You know, it's just like it works. You know, (laughs) but beyond that, there's there's a lot of struggle and there's a lot of negotiation involved. Now, I don't have the benefit of the first hand experience as an artist to testify to this as you have, but I'm imagining that the difference between a, a 16 by 20 um, board mm-hmm. and a roughly 11 by 16 or 11 by 17 board mm-hmm. um, uh, is a difference between drawing with your elbow and drawing with your wrist, right? Yeah. So there's just, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that Kirby's way of adjusting to that is um, eventually led him this is my guess uh i've written about this uh briefly my guess is that the the habit of double page spreads inside of most kirby comics from like the early mid-70s onwards Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) Uh, it has something to do with that oh uh, I remember that readers letter hacks you know would complain about the, the lack of story progression in a single issue of kirby in the mid 70s I thought they were nuts it's a 10 year old 12 year old I love those comics oh, but me people too. with you know we were at a point where there was only 17 to 18 pages of story and the rest was stuffed with ads in like Marvel and DC comic books and here was Kirby usually eating up pages two and three in a spread yeah right? uh, and it drove people uh, some people crazy. I just loved it. And, and oh, okay. I also thought it was narratively efficient because it established or reestablished a milieu very quickly without exposit- much expository dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was oh, a there. lot of dialogue-driven comics that were favored uh, by fans um, uh, in those days. You know, Kirby was getting bigger while the page count was getting smaller. <laughs> uh, I was just um, rereading um, uh, Fantastic Four run, Kirby, Sinna, and Lee um from late 68 early 69 um uh, i was rereading it because i i, I uh, ended up uh, discussing that with douglas walk on his uh, podcast the voice of latveria which is his doctor oh. Doom podcast which is oh, a delight right. and i was looking at this run uh and there's an awful lot of of splash pages in it yes. uh full page images um double page images were very rare in a Marvel comic of the 60s. Um, uh, you know, um, but the full pages, there's a lot of them. And some of them depict landscapes, panoramic vistas, you know, and big things, lots of figures in them. Then again, some of these splashes are just like Victor Von Doom yeah. in, in close-up. Uh, yeah, and absolute. there's some pretty staggering drawing in these, including one amazing uh, splash page <laughs> where Doom is shouting in profile, uh, in extreme close-up. So you have a most unusual angle on Doctor Doom. His metallic masked face, seen in profile, it consumes the entire splash. Almost, it's just like intense. Um, and I, I, I really, you know, and there is that tendency toward an even greater distillation, an even more brutal kind of stylization that's happening. Um, it doesn't look as brutal when Joe Sinnott is inking it the yeah. uh, 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 Sinnott expertly varying the line weight and bringing out just like an orgy of textures and it's so beautiful um, in that way um, uh, but there is a kind of <laughs> brutal quality uh, and that kind of reminds me of a much later Kirby full page image from a Captain America annual that he did in the mid 70s um, where there's this you know, sort of cosmic vampire, this vampiric creature from space. And there's this horrifying splash where um, the creature previously, small, timid, uh, seemingly a victim, is revealed as the, as the real monster. And it's, and its mouth is... You've never seen so much fang in one mouth. I mean, there is so much. And this looming face is in the foreground is gigantic and cap is in the background uh kind of quailing as you see this 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 horrific figure in the foreground and and, uh um and so uh the gaping mouth of the of the figure the monster is is like the foreground framing element in the image and it's also the dominant um uh kind of thing in the image uh and it is just one of those uh, insane full-page drawings. Yes, I just Googled it up here again. My God. It's, uh, it's a crazy page where the creature's open-mouth frames the star on Cap's chest and Cap's in the background, mm-hmm. right? And, and the, the creature is uh, cropped so that one of its um, eyeballs is cropped by the panel edge, Uh, And its eyeballs are staring right at the reader, actually, like, like, uh, uh, you know, like the creatures looking at you from out the corner of its eyes. Uh, In the meantime, um, its mouth is like the size of a battleship. It's just like, oh, (laughs) oh my God. (laughs) And I think about that when I think about those kind of brute stylizations of Kirby and and the um, uh, the the intensity all that about. stuff, yeah. Um, it's it, it's um, it's great stuff, but I, I agree when they go through the Murphy Anderson shift to smaller boards mm-hmm. in the late '60s, and that happens um, almost uh, once it happens at one company, it happens at the other yeah, almost yeah. immediately. Um, Kirby is constrained, you know, by that. Um, it happens that if you put two of the smaller boards together. Um, and draw one big spread across them. Yep. That yeah. is roughly the dimensions of the old boards.
0: Yeah. Uh, Although it's not format. Yeah. yeah. You're right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking Kirby sort of um, uh, exercises that, that as you said, that drawing arm and that graphic sense um, through uh, those spreads. And it's in that period it's in the seventies where the kind of, Visionary panoramic spreads, which is the kind of Kirby art you often find when you're just Googling, you know, yes. uh, is uh, really really comes to the fore, and it's also uh, in in that period where uh, his artwork becomes most rugged, <clears throat> uh, and it was not a fashionable kind of art in, right. in the mid to late 70s, which was much more uh, kind of um, in in tune to that sort of Adam's era aesthetic,
0: right? Very Um, much As
1: as a kid, though, I I, I loved it. Like, that was, like, to me, that's what comic books look like.
0: So that's it for part one of my conversation with Charles Hatfield, and I hope you got as much from that as I did. Man, uh, it just opens your eyes. You know, Charles just opens your eyes to so much... So much in the making of comics and the connections from one comics creator to another comics creator. This wonderful <laughs> pantheon, as it were, of uh, of great cartoonists and great comics creators and how they all segue and influence one to another. Because that's what it is, right? It's a dialogue. It's a great dialogue between uh, cartoonists and artists and writers and designers and uh, all of that there's so many different parts to it anyway next time conversation goes deeper into kirby and into comics and there's more to it and charles has some more interesting and insightful things to say to add to this if there could be more there is so look for that coming at you very quickly okay Uh, be sure to follow at Greenscreen Comic, okay, on Instagram for all the news and information about upcoming shows and all the information about my project, my new comic, Greenscreen, available soon on Kickstarter. And you can keep up with the sneak peeks and all of the info at Greenscreen Comic on Instagram or on my website at jeffgrogan.com. And I'm excited about this newly redesigned website. It's about time for a change, so uh, have a look at it. Let me know what you think, okay? You can follow all of my stuff. I've got a bunch of stuff up there so um, to keep you entertained for hours. So uh, be sure to look into that if you have a moment to kill. I would appreciate it if you did. Oh, gosh. Okay, it's hot in here, and I need my, my throat. I'm losing my voice, as you can hear. So I need to get out of this uh sweat box I'm in and into some cooler environment somewhere. And I hope you are doing the same wherever you are. And in the meantime, again, stay cool, stay safe. Enjoy the summer wherever you're doing. Enjoy life in, in the new world post-COVID, but still remain vigilant again. And uh, I will see you next time, okay? Thanks for listening.